You know, as a dad, there are, there are certain phrases that you just hate to hear. And one of those is, but dad, you promised. Now, you go through, like, different stages with this phrase as your kids, you know, get older. Um, sometimes it's kind of a manipulative phrase. You know, um, your kids are kind of, like, carefully parsing your words you know, it's fascinating how they pay such close attention to things that you agree to and promise to, but seem to not pay any attention to things you ask them to do. Um, you know, very selective hearing. But dad, you promised. You know, sometimes it's a uh, demand, and it breaks your heart when you really did promise, but circumstances beyond your control mean that you have to break that promise. And I think it, it's sort of built into us to live by the promises. You know, I, I really do believe that one of the ways that we learn to understand who God is like is by our relationship with our parents. Now, unfortunately, for a lot of people, that's been one of the biggest barriers to understanding what God is like. But the reason it's such a barrier for some people whose parents don't reflect well the nature of God and his love and, of course, all parents fail at one level or another. But, you know, those where that relationship is really broken, it's that much more damaging. Because we were made, we were made to be in relationship with one who makes and keeps promises. When we were created, the Bible says, we were created in a relationship with a God we had a beautiful, perfect relationship with, who made promises to be our God and asked us to walk before him as his people. And I think it's still built into us to expect that promises mean something. Of course, the problem is we lie, but even when we don't lie, sometimes things are beyond our control. And tonight we're going to look at this idea of promises. Because when you get to Galatians chapter 3, which is where we are tonight, you find that the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of the good news, centers around the idea of promise. And really centers around the idea, does God relate to us Primarily as one who makes promises or primarily as one who makes demands? How do we relate to God? As one who makes promises or as one who makes demands? In a lot of ways, that's the issue at the heart of Galatians. You remember I've been saying Galatians is Paul's angriest letter. The good thing about that is that you get insight into what really mattered enough for Paul to get angry. If you want to understand, within 20 or 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what Christians thought was worth getting mad about, what thing, what idea could be threatened, what idea was so important that when it was threatened, it was worth getting mad about. Well, Galatians is a good clue. And we're getting into the heart of Galatians here in chapter 3. And we find that the heart of Galatians centers around this idea that the gospel is a promise. 
And that's not just some like abstract bit of theology. It actually concerns who God is and what is he like. So let's look at this passage. We're going to actually start in verse 10 of Galatians 3. It's kind of picking up in the middle of an argument, but as you recall, last week, if you were with us, we focused mostly on Galatians 3, 8. Galatians 3, verse 8, Paul talks about how the Scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. And I talked about how you don't understand the Bible unless you understand the gospel, and you don't understand the gospel unless you have the Bible, because that's where we get it, right? Now, he's going to continue on that idea, and now he's going to flesh out exactly what is so important to understand about this promise that God made to Abraham, and how that teaches us about the nature of God and the way he relates to people, not just in Abraham's day, not just in Paul's day, but in our day. So let's look at Galatians chapter 3. We'll start verse 10. This is God's word. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. And then he quotes um, from Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, Paul says, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because, and then he quotes again the Bible, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the law says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, again quoting the Bible, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, or hung on a tree, some translations say. He redeemed us. Christ redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish people, his non-linear descendants, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, or we would say a human contract, that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later. That means the law given by Moses on the Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, was given 430 years later after this Abraham episode. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant relationship previously established by God and thus do away with the promise For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, 
then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you for this lengthy and difficult passage, but we pray that you would help us to understand what is so vital for us to understand about the promise. And why is Paul so concerned to make sure we get this point? Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Send your spirit. Amen. So, you know, really the heart of this passage is about relying. Upon what do you rely? And every relationship, actually, is based on something. There's something that holds it together. You might say, well, it's based on, you know, kind of a contract, you know, maybe a relationship with somebody that you've hired, or it's based on an implied contract, like between you and your professors. There's, every relationship has something that holds it together. And Paul is in a disagreement with the people that he calls the false teachers, particularly over the basis of our relationship with God. In particular, upon what can we and should we rely for a relationship with the God who made us? Seems like an important thing. And Paul is going to argue against these false teachers, and he's going to use the scriptures to do it. The reason is because there is a common story that both Paul and these false teachers hold to. It's the story of the Old Testament. And, and the, the, the Bible, you know, is, is a story. It's not just a random collection of little sayings. It really has a, a general storyline. It's a big meta-narrative, if you will, about who God is, who mankind is, how we relate to God, right? And there is particularly a couple of the important figures in this story are Abraham and Moses. And what the false teachers were teaching, maybe, maybe I'll give you this framework that will help you understand. The false teachers were saying, okay, yes, God related to Abraham through a promise. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to, through your seed, Bless all the nations of the earth. But when Moses came, the false teacher said, God changed the way he related to people. He said, you know, that promised way of relating to my people didn't work very well. So I'm going to give them the law. In some ways, and even there are Christians today that teach this, that basically plan B, God's people didn't really live like they should have, under this promise agreement made with Abraham. So now plan B, we're going to try the law. 
That's what the Galatians false teachers had told them. And they're saying what Paul has done when he came and taught you the gospel, he taught you the Abraham verse, and he taught you all about Abraham, but he didn't give you the whole story. He didn't tell you how, yes, God initially related to his people by promise, but now under Moses, he's told us all these things we need to do. And God has never rescinded all those things he told us to do. So if you Gentiles who aren't Jewish want to become Christians, well, you need to go back and pay attention to all the things God said you need to do. Doesn't it make sense that if God said it, we should do it? And Paul says, if you fall into that teaching, you have lost the gospel, the good news. Now, as we get into this, you might be like, well, that just sounds like a theological debate. I would promise you that at the root of all of your spiritual problems lies this question. What are you really relying on? Why do you think you have a right to believe that God might smile at you? It's a really important question. It's a question that doesn't just concern what happens when you die, though it certainly is important for that issue. It affects the way you live every day. Do you think that God smiles at you more on a day where you do all the things he asks you to do? Or does he smile at you the same whether you do all the things he wants you to do or have a really a kind of a day or a weekend where you do a lot of things that you know he's not pleased with? In other words, is God someone who relates to us by promises, or is he kind of like a perfectionistic parent who's never satisfied, right? I see me doing that to my kids all the time. You know, I try to encourage them, but it's just so easy to slip into all the things they haven't done, especially these days. You know, we have this thing called grade speed. Did you guys have grade speed when you are in school? Well, we, in Metro Nashville, we have this. And basically, I can log in and check every day what my kids have done and if they're missing something or, you know, so it's just like the scrutiny that I as a parent can have. And, you know, I have boys, middle school boys. They're not very communicative, particularly about school. So I feel like I have to check. But then inevitably it brings up like I'm just like, you know, every little thing. What about this? What about that? What about this? Do you have this to do? Do you have to do this? And you know, it breeds all kinds of fights. And I feel like it's not, just, it's, not, it, 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 it's not just about the stuff they're supposed to do. It bleeds over into the very way that we relate to one another. Okay? So this matters. Now, Paul is very strong here. And he starts out saying, look, if you're relying on the works of the law, you're under a curse. You're under a curse because the Bible says that. If you decide that the way I'm going to make sure that God loves me is by doing all the stuff that he likes, well, then the problem is, number one, the Bible says you're under a curse, but number two, you know you're under a curse because as soon as you go down that path, you have to keep it up. Paul's saying basically there's two ways to relate to God. You either trust his promise and you put all your hope in his character or you kind of try to hedge your bets, try to cover your bases, and make sure you do all the right stuff. And we often think that we're kind of somewhere in between, but Paul's saying it's one or the other. If you are trusting in the least little bit 
in what you do or what you don't do, then you have changed the nature of the relationship with God. Now, I love, I love this, um, this passage, but I know it's a little, it's a little difficult to understand. But let me, let me take you through some of these verses and try and reword it in a way that you could maybe understand. He's saying, he's, he's talking about this word law a lot. Now, you'll find this word, if you try to read the Bible and you try to read the New Testament in particular, you'll find this word law used a lot. The tricky thing is it's used in different ways in different places. Even the Apostle Paul in his various writings uses it in different ways. And you really have to pay attention to the context to know what's going on. Sometimes law means, and actually even in this passage it's used two different ways. Sometimes law means the Ten Commandments. So when it says down in, um, where is it, the 430 years part? Yeah, it's in verse 17. The law introduced 430 years later. That's talking about the Ten Commandments, okay? But yet back up in um, verse uh, 10, all who rely on the works of the law, there it's not talking just about the Ten Commandments. It's not. Because one of the issues that's going on here in Galatians is these false teachers saying, you need to do the works of the law. And they don't mean just the Ten Commandments. They mean you need to be circumcised. They mean you need to eat the food that God said you're supposed to eat and not eat the food that you're not supposed to eat. That stuff is not in the Ten Commandments. So there he's not just referring to the Ten Commandments. He's talking to the law. And then he also talks about law as a, as a way of living as a basic principle, which means relying on your law keeping. So it, it's complicated, but here's the basic thing. Is the way we relate to God a law agreement or a promise agreement? And Paul says it's a promise agreement. Now the false teachers say, well, yes, it was in Abraham, but then under Moses it changed. Now Paul says, look down at verse 15. He says, let me, let me help you understand could the law that came through Moses have changed the way God related to his people? No. Why? Because God made a promise that established a relationship with Abraham. And just like a human contract, look, if I, okay, I do every now and then teach a class here at Belmont. And you know how the students, how you would feel if we got down to finals week and I completely changed the syllabus and the expectations. And I said, you know, I said that you needed to do this, but now I'm changing all that. If you missed a single class, you're going to drop a letter grade. Sorry. Right? You'd go to the dean, you'd flip out, right? But you don't do that. Um, and particularly when there's actually like a, con a, a promise that's been ratified in an official way. And that's what happened with Abraham and God. God said, I will do this. Okay? And it was actually a pretty interesting um, story. Do you, do you remember how God made this promise to Abraham? God made this promise to Abraham, and then he gave him a sign to help him know that God meant what he said. And what he did was, he told Abraham, go get some animals, some birds and animals, and cut them in half. It's pretty gruesome. Now, Abraham understood what was going on because this is the way you made serious contracts in the ancient world. 
in the ancient Near East, okay? What you would do is you would take animals and birds, you would cut them a half, you would set the two halves apart from each other, and you would make like a path between the halves of the animals you'd cut apart. And then the two people that were making the agreement would clasp hands and they would walk through the animals. And what they were saying in that ritual action was, if either of us fails to keep our agreement, then may it be done to us what has been done to these animals. It's kind of like a hyper-intense version of cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? The idea like, what are you saying when you say that? Have you ever said that? Do you really mean like if I don't keep my promise, you can literally stick a needle in my eye? No, but that's what they meant when they did this. That's what they meant. So here's what happens. God says, go get these animals, cut them in half. And Abraham's like, okay, I get it. I know what's happening. God and I are going to make an agreement. This is serious. But what does God do? I don't know if you remember the story, but I'll tell you what God does. God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. He does not let Abraham walk through the pieces at all. He doesn't. He puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And then you know what happens? God appears as a smoking firepot and goes through the pieces by himself. What does that mean? What that means is God is saying the nature of our relationship, Abraham, is based upon me and me alone. The only one that needs to be faithful for us to have a beautiful relationship, a relationship in which you will be blessed, the only one who needs to be faithful is me. Because you're not even walking through the pieces. You're not pledging your life. I'm pledging my life by my self. Now, that's pretty amazing. And I would say for a lot of people who would call themselves Christians, that's not the way they understand their relationship with God. They understand their relationship with God. Most of, I would say, the Christian students I know who've grown up in church think that they walked through the pieces with God in some sort of way, either by asking God into their heart or by promising that they would change their life. They did something where they feel like it was me and God who worked together and cooperated together. And Paul says that's not the nature of the gospel. That's not a promise agreement. Now, let me, let me try to illustrate this. Here's what Paul's saying about the gospel. It would be like if, if I said to Jonathan, Jonathan, I'm going to give you a million dollars. It's awesome, isn't it? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, it'd be great if I, if I had the money, you know, you probably wouldn't wouldn't take that promise too seriously because you know that I don't probably have that money. I probably don't have the ability. I probably don't really even have the desire to do it because you know me a little bit, right? Um, I am pretty generous. Gifts are my love language, but I still don't think you can believe that that's going to happen. But listen, here it's a completely different relationship, though, if I say this. Jonathan, would you come over to my house and rake my leaves? And if you do that, I'll give you a million dollars. Now, most people think of Christianity as that second thing. I have to do something, but it's such an infinitesimally small thing compared to what I get that, like, of course it's gracious 
You would say, if Jonathan comes over and rakes my leaves and I give him a million dollars, you would probably say that that's grace. Paul would say, no, it's not grace. It's a wage. And the gospel is not a wage. It's not a wage. It's an inheritance that you didn't work for. It's a gift based on a promise that you didn't make and you couldn't possibly keep. Is that the way you think of God? As the one who makes promises, makes and keeps his promises. Because if, if you don't get that, you, if you don't believe that it's all about the promises, the only choice you have is you better do something to impress God. And once you go down that road, it's just this, it's just this catch-22 you can't ever get out of. How much do you really have to do to impress God? More than your roommate? You know, that's one of the things we often do. And, and later in this letter, Paul will say, the problem with you Galatians, the reason I know that you've lost sight of the way you truly should be relating to God is because you're biting and devouring one another. If you wonder, like, why is there conflict in my relationships? Why am I always critical of everybody? Why am I always, you know, just frustrated with everybody and always, like, nitpicking? Paul would say it connects to whether you're relating to God based on a promise or law. Because if you're trying to relate to God based on your law-keeping, one thing that we know is you must be terribly insecure. Because you, you know deep down you probably haven't done enough and you haven't done it consistently. You see what he, he says? Look, no one relies on the law and is justified um, because it says this, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. If you want to relate to God based on what you do, you need to do everything and you need to continue to do it. So the way I would put it is this way. God, you know, Jesus said that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Not just once, not for one brief shining moment, but for your entire life. You sure you want to go down that path? But in some ways, we do want to go down that path. Why? Well, it just seems more tangible and controllable. It's awful scary to trust God alone and not do something that will distinguish you from other people. I mean, everything about your life is about trying to distinguish yourself from other people. In some ways, in some ways, you know, college is this weird time. You don't want to stand out, but you kind of want to be recognized. And it's sort of weird. Like, you, you, don't, you, don't want to, you don't want to stand out in a bad way, but yet you want to be known. And you want to be recognized. And we, we bring that into the spiritual life. We're always trying to do something to make ourselves feel like we're a little bit better than somebody else right? But it won't work. What does all this have to do with Abraham and Moses? Well, that's where we get into the law. Why, if God wanted us to relate to him through a promise, why in the world did Moses come? I mean, why? That's what Paul has to deal with. Well, what does he say? And that's verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? He says it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Well, what does that mean? 
He goes on, verse 21, is the law opposed to the promise of God? No, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Listen, here's what he's saying. It's difficult to live by the promise. It's hard to do it. And the only way you can really do it is if you despair completely of your ability to impress God. And God graciously helped us despair by giving the law. I mean, God had told Adam and Eve, walk before me as my people, right? In the Ten Commandments, he gets a little more specific. Okay? The reason he gets a little more specific is so that mankind would learn that we need to depend upon God and his grace and his promises alone. So the law wasn't given to make us try to relate to God in a different way. The law was given to drive us to the only possible way we could have a relationship with God, which is through his promise. It was gracious of God to give the law, to make us despair of being able to impress him in any sort of way. And you might think, good night, that doesn't sound very gracious. Like what kind of parent, what kind of parent would just crush your hopes that you could ever impress them? I would say a parent that wants you to be free. Because most of the bondage in your life is because you're not yet convinced that you can't really do it. The things that hold you in bondage are the things that you think, if I tried a little bit harder, if I was a little bit more clever, if I was a little more talented, a little prettier, I would be able to do this. Those are the things that hold you in bondage. And you'll never really find freedom until you just quit that whole thing. God sends the law to kill us, to make us despair, to wake us up to reality that there is no way we can relate to God or impress him by what we've done. And the sooner we're delivered from that illusion, the better it will be for us. So Moses didn't come to change the way we relate to God. He came to drive us even deeper into trust in the promise. That's what Paul is trying to argue here right? Now, Paul, Paul says, you know, two things to get at this. He, he, it's really interesting. Um, should we interpret Abraham by Paul or Abraham by Moses or Moses by Abraham? And it's interesting, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, the Bible is written by men and it kind of maybe has some kind of God ideas, but the words don't really matter that much. Paul bases his whole argument here on one letter, doesn't he? He says, Scripture doesn't say seeds, meaning many, but seed. In other words, when God makes a promise, he makes a promise that Christ himself will have to fulfill. Here's, here's what the basic storyline of the Bible says. Mankind needs to be righteous in God's sight. We need to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Jesus is quoting the Old Testament when he says that. He didn't make that up out of the blue. 
And the Old Testament says, yes, we need to do that. But we can't do it. And then the, the Old Testament begins to give little hints that there is going to be a solution to this dilemma. And at first, you don't really know where it's going to come from. For instance, in the days of Noah, you find out Noah had three sons, but it's through one of these sons that hope is going to come to the human race. You find finally that it's going to be through Abraham and his line, but eventually you find that it comes down to one faithful Israelite who will obey God from the heart in the place of God's people. The promise, and Paul actually says this in one of his letters to the Corinthians, he says, as many promises as God has made, and you go looking through the Old Testament, there are a lot of promises. As many promises God has made, they're all yea and amen in Christ. They're all fulfilled in Christ. The promise that we could have a relationship with God is secured because there is one who took the curse that all of our law-breaking deserved and obeyed where we needed to obey. Okay? Now, the Jews said Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah because they knew that the Bible said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And in Jesus' day, they understood crucifixion to be a fulfillment of that scripture. One thing we'll know, whoever gets crucified can't possibly be the Messiah because being crucified proves that they're cursed of God. Paul says, yes, yes. But you missed the grand point. He was cursed for us in our place so that Salvation could come through this promise that's been made and kept in Jesus. Understanding that the gospel is a promise rather than a law agreement is the key to understanding the Bible. It really is. The blessing to you comes by promise, not by law, right? And here's the thing. Did God break his promise? No but he was ripped apart anyway. When the Bible says here that Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse, what he means is that promise that God made, that promise that God made, we broke it and God himself was torn in half. That's what the cross was all about. Right? The gospel is a promise that God signs and gifts to you. Everything demanded is paid for by Christ. And this is the only way you can relate to him. Now jump, jump down in this passage now. Verse 26. So, this is his grand conclusion. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. What he's saying is, there's no other way to relate to God than through Christ and through faith. For all of you, he says, were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Here's what this radical conclusion that Paul's driving here. Whether you're a woman or a man, whether you're free or a slave, you are all 
made beautiful in God's sight in the same way. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no distinctions anymore. As a matter of fact, in, this, in his letters, Paul gives different directions at times to men and women. Paul's not wiping out distinctions between men and women. I know a lot of people take this verse and think, well, there shouldn't be any roles in the church and there's no distinctions anymore. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There are no second-class citizens. Everybody who relates to God has to relate to him as a promise agreement rather than a law agreement. And everybody that does is equal in his eyes, equally beautiful. It doesn't matter whether you're Abraham's literal descendants or whether you're Gentiles who never had anything to do with Abraham. You are fully accepted. Why is that important? Well, because these false teachers were saying there's some second-class citizens in the kingdom. You know, there are you people who've like, you know, accepted Jesus believed in him, but you're not really doing all the stuff that God said you should do. So, yeah, I guess you're saved, but God's not really pleased with you. You know, that stuff still goes on. It has different, different names now. There are Christians, and then there are spirit-filled Christians. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Seriously, I know other people disagree with me. Galatians 3 says that we're all alike Seeds, seed of Abraham, fully beautiful in his sight. There are no second-class Christians in the kingdom. There are churches around here, there are groups around here that would teach you if you don't speak in tongues, you're a second-class citizen. You don't really have the Spirit. That is, it's a lie, and it's bondage, and it's a denial of the gospel. You relate to God based on the promise, not based on what you do. And you need to know that. Because if you try to relate to God based on what you do, you will forever be in despair. Let me give you two, a couple practical ways that this works out and why this matters. The first, is, um, the first thing I want to say is this really matters because this totally affects how you think of God. Right? Is God one who's like this demanding, perfectionistic parent? You know, perfectionistic parents breed bitter kids. And judging from a lot of the Christians I know, they really believe God is a perfectionistic parent. Right? Do you think of God as one who delights to make promises to you? In the promises of God, you have his heart revealed. It also teaches us the true view of the Bible. Again, you know, if you think Moses and Abraham are opposed to each other. Now, some of you have taken Old Testament and you've learned this JEPD documentary hypothesis. It's bunk. We can talk about it over coffee. I'll tell you why it's bunk. But here's one of the reasons. Because Moses and Abraham are not opposed to each other. The Bible is not based or is not a bunch of different agendas that somehow got sort of smoothed over and reconciled. But that's what that view teaches, that you have these different competing views, the priestly view and the, you know, the, the prophet view, and then somehow it all gets kind of jammed together. No, not at all. But that's, that's you know, what Paul's coming against, right? And do the words themselves matter? Absolutely. Paul argues this passage based on the word seed versus seeds. 
One letter. You better believe the words matter. Paul says the heart of the gospel is found in this one letter. You better believe God took care to preserve the scriptures so that we could depend upon them. And you better believe that the Bible is a coherent story that makes sense. It does. Last thing I'll say is this teaches us about prayer. Now, this is just sort of a a random thing. Let me think about this. Most people I know feel like they're terrible at prayer. We have Day of Prayer coming up, right, Thursday? And um, I I love this this one uh, statement. There's a guy, Brother Lawrence. He was this uh, Catholic monk guy. He basically worked in the kitchen peeling potatoes, cutting vegetables, right? And he had this great statement where he said, "Once once I realized that I was a failure at prayer, then I got much better at prayer. <laughs> if you think of prayer as a performance, you will never pray well. Because you'll always feel like you could pray more, pray better, pray with more fervency, pray with more knowledge. If you start critiquing the performance of your prayers, you will not want to pray at all. Right? Similarly, if you start critiquing how faithful you are in reading the Bible, you'll not want to read the Bible at all. Because even to open it up reminds you, oh, I should have done this yesterday and the day before and at least once in the last six months, right? But if you understand that the way God relates to you is through his promise rather than you, your law-keeping, then when you open the Bible, you're looking for the promises of God that reveal his heart for you. When you come to pray, you're coming to a God who makes promises that are just astounding to you, right? Most Christians struggle with prayer because they're relying on their law-keeping for their relationship with God, and they feel they've got no right to ask God for anything. And you know what? Based on your law-keeping, you don't have a right to ask God for anything. You're hoping that maybe if, you know, if you ask just for little teeny things, that maybe he'll have pity on you, Right? That's why most people don't ask for anything big. But if you understand that when Christ look, when God looks at you, he sees you as beautiful as Christ, then you can ask for huge things. Yeah. It really matters. And here's the last thing I say. You know, as a father, one of the things that breaks my heart, you know, Dad, you promised, and I don't have the ability, even if I mean well, I don't have the ability to keep the promises I make to my kids. But we have a Heavenly Father who makes and keeps promises, and there is nobody who can bring up a circumstance that will thwart his ability to keep his promises. Isn't that the story of the gospel? The triumph of the gospel? That it wasn't even your unbelief couldn't stop Jesus dying on the cross, being raised from the dead? The fact that Jesus raised from the dead meant that what he did at the cross worked. And there's no longer any need for him to be punished. Isn't that amazing? Jesus finished the work. Just as was promised. And he promises that he's going to complete the good work he began in you. God is a God who makes and keeps his promises. It's good news. You can rely on it. And I will tell you this. Faith feeds on the promises of God. Faith feeds on the promises of God.
If you feel like your relationship with God is cold and lifeless, I suspect it's because you're not reading and feeding on the promises of God. One of the best things you can do is start read, go just go through the Psalms and everywhere God says, I will, write it down. I've got a great book in my library called The I Wills of the Psalms. There's a lot of I wills in the Bible. Go to Bible Gateway and just type in that phrase, I will. Look how many times it comes up. Start feasting on that stuff. Get your heart around the heart of God revealed in the promises. Seen most clearly in Jesus on the cross. Let's pray.